This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. These days, the platforms that pump news around the internet make more money out of that than the media who actually make the news. But in Australia, they've done deals to ensure the media get more. And now, big tech could even get fiercely fined for online falsehoods there. But in Canada, the government's been accused of caving in to the likes of Google and Facebook. So what's the story here? Also, we have an update on New Zealand's longest-lasting columnists. But first, recent reports have warned of a mortgage bomb that could blow up the economy. But is the story really as explosive as some headlines would have you believe? Could you find an extra $1,600 a month in the household budget if you had to? Well, that is the sharp end of the cost of living crisis for some Aucklanders, and that's on mortgage payments alone. Westpac has crunched the numbers for the so-called great refixing, and here is the reality check. That was Lisa Owen on RNZ's Checkpoint last Monday. Now, during the COVID crisis, many borrowers bought homes when house prices were surging in 2020 and 2021, and loans fixed for a couple of years back then are now facing interest rates roughly twice those on offer at that time, or even more, and not only for Aucklanders. Are you seeing more mortgage arrears? Normally when you apply for a mortgage, you wouldn't have been tested at those very low rates that were on offer through the pandemic. Chances are you would have been tested at rates that are closer to where we're at now, in that 5 to 6% range, although different lenders will have different requirements. In terms of those arrears, we have seen them starting to creep up, but they're still at pretty low levels. The economy's in good shape. The labour market especially is still pretty tight. That means people have still got some buffers that are helping insulate them from that pain that's coming through from mortgages as well as other living costs. So money's going to be tight, but as Satish Ranchod said there, when rates were low, bank lenders like Westpac did check if borrowers had the means to handle a higher rate in the future, as has now come to pass. And earlier this month, the chief executive of ANZ Bank, Antonia Watson, made a similar point on News Talk ZB when she was asked about mortgages in arrears. We've always tested people on higher rates, so when mm. you were down at 2%, um, we were testing at 5.8%. We now test at 8.75%, so we make sure you can pay an amount higher than, mm, than yeah, your initial yeah. interest rate. And Antonia Watson also said some mortgage holders had even planned for the rainy days of today and beyond. People are getting pay rises. Over COVID, we saw both businesses and um, personal customers really tighten their belts, make sure they had s- improved their savings habits, paid down. We've got um, 35-odd percent of our home loans are more than six months ahead on their repayments. Yeah. So yes... There's definitely more signs of stress, but is it um, unmanageable? Definitely not unmanageable. Now, it is, of course, in the interest of the banks to play down the danger of defaults and talk up the interventions that they have for people who might find they can't keep up with payments. And in mid-May, interest.co.nz pointed out that a quarter of loans that were stress-tested by the banks in 2020 and 21 are now above those stress-testing limits. And a story on newsroom.co.nz this week made the problem sound acute. A new survey has found around 3% of New Zealand mortgage holders could be facing the very real possibility of being forced to sell a property over the next year as a result of higher interest rates. And this was according to the latest banking survey of just under 1,100 people conducted by the research firm Horizon. And if that was accurate, well, that would mean around 42,000 home loans were in trouble. 
Furthermore, 70% of the same survey's respondents said they were concerned they may not be able to afford payments when they renew at current or even higher fixed rates. And a month ago, the National Party's Deputy Leader and Finance Spokesperson Nicola Willis made it sound drastic when she kicked off the National Party's annual conference warning of a looming mortgage bomb. The whole economy will shudder if it goes off, she warned, And the former National Party press advisor Janet Wilson even called it a mortgage Armageddon in her column in Wellington's Daily The Post last weekend, with, she said, steadily increasing numbers of people in arrears. But how many? Well, in an earlier statement on the 2nd of May, Nicola Willis said 430,000 Kiwis are now behind on debt repayments, including mortgages, as well as car loans and credit cards, and she said that number had grown for eight months in a row. Now for this, she cited new monthly data for March from the credit reporting agency Centrix, whose managing director Keith McLaughlin said at the time, Unless there's a circuit breaker of some sorts, then we'd expect the trend to continue. And also around that time, the global news agency Bloomberg reported what it called signs of stress emerging in New Zealand's housing market, which it said could be a sign of things to come elsewhere. The BNZ and Westpac told Bloomberg they'd seen an uptick in customers seeking financial support, but they said most of that was because of Cyclone Gabrielle in February. And KiwiBank said it hadn't seen a significant uplift in consumers requiring support. Nevertheless, all that was reported online under the headline Missed Mortgage Payments Swell in Housing Bellwether, New Zealand. Its New Zealand correspondent Ainsley Thomas also cited the Centrix data when she said this on Bloomberg TV. Noting when I spoke to the uh, the head of Centrix yesterday, that's the data bureau that put out this information. He said that this is a real reversal in trend. For the last five years or so, the arrears rates has been dropping in New Zealand, and that's because of improved regulation, things like affordability tests on people taking out mortgages. And now, in the last seven months, we've seen quite a, a marked change in that, and a real uptick in, in people who are falling behind in their mortgage payments. And when the arrears data for the month of April came out in early June, well it turned out that Centrix was much more positive. People behind in their payments had fallen to 411,000, with RNZ News reporting Keith McLaughlin of Centrix is saying this at that time. The drop is encouraging and suggests households are adjusting their borrowing and spending. Now on Bloomberg TV back in April, Ainsley Thomas also pointed out that with unemployment low and people's pay rising, hopefully there would not be too many forced sales in the future. And at that point there were 38 properties advertised as residential mortgagee sales nationwide, interest.co.nz reported, and the proportion of home loans in arrears on the 1st of May was lower than the 1.5% recorded at the start of March 2021. Back in 2009, by contrast, in the wake of the global financial crisis, there were more than 3,000 mortgagee sales. But if things get worse as people's payments rise now, how many people might be casualties of a so-called mortgage bomb in the months ahead? Well, last week, Stuff senior business journalist Miriam Bell ran the numbers. A third of New Zealand households have a mortgage, she said, meaning about 1.1 million in total, and around 10% of those are on floating rates, which won't be experiencing the sudden jumps. But about a quarter of current lending originated in 2021, she said, and half of the mortgages are due for refixing over the next 12 months. ASB Bank told Stuff a significant number of customers had already refixed onto higher rates over the last 18 months. A third of its customers were already paying interest at rates closer to what the bank expected would be the market peak.
The PNZ told Stuff that less than half of 1% of its mortgages were in arrears for 90 days or more, and that's far lower than the average of 1.9% in arrears that was recorded back in March 2020, before the current wave of borrowing on fixed rates. So what then to make of stories reporting that 70% of people surveyed by Horizon were concerned they might not be able to afford payments when they renew, or that 3% who said they would definitely have to sell in the coming year? Well, in his daily bulletin, The Kaka, Bernard Hickey pointed out this week that the Horizon survey was an opt-in one for homeowners and the responses didn't match reality. If that was to actually happen in the next year, that would mean that two-thirds of all the house sales in the next year would be mortgagee sales. Because remember, there's only about 60,000 house sales a year going through at the moment. We're also not seeing a huge number of properties being put on the market, which is what you'd expect if there was going to be a whole bunch of forced sales. And Bernard Hickey went on to say that those who are most likely to be in a difficult position now would be those who took risks to buy properties which they don't currently live in. And they are effectively, through the opposition, um, complaining about a government policy which made that investment choice riskier. Uh, That would be like the opposition complaining about the government Uh, and saying the government should help out or bail out those people who took a risk to buy shares or borrowed money to buy shares. Property is seen rather differently by politicians, Bernard Hickey pointed out. And even if negative equity or an exploding mortgage bomb turns out to be real, well, there are still plenty of people in the media talking up property as a proven low, low low-risk investment. Among them, the self-described property queen, Nikki Connors, who told Duncan Garner this on his podcast, Editor-in-Chief, last month. The difference in mortgages isn't um, yeah. any, <laughs> but, but, any but, different. But property, property prices in the last 20 years, have they have doubled every seven years, seven, eight years. Well, it's actually been a lot longer than that. It has been? It, oh, yes, very much it been, so. It's been, it has been the 12 years, has it? Um, no, it's... Uh, it's, we're, we're talking about for over 40-something years that um, property prices have doubled, mm. and I don't see that going down. And the Prime Minister ruling out a capital gains tax on Wednesday won't have dissuaded people from putting their money into houses either, possibly boosting the sizes of the mortgages that people are prepared to take on, even at the risk of higher repayments, making it even more unaffordable. Last weekend, the All Blacks beat Argentina in their own backyard, but Captain Sam Kane copped criticism for tripping a local teenage pitch invader to the turf. But on NZME's rural show The Country, Kane had the backing of long-retired rugby host Murray Deeker. He should have stuck both feet out when he'd uplifted him, given him a kick in the backside and got him off the ground. Well, that bloke was probably lucky because the way Sam Kane was tackling in that Argentinian text, if he'd, uh, test, should I say, if he'd tackled him, he would have cut him in half. Yeah, look, it's inexplicable that the media picks up things like that and they should adopt a different attitude to it. Now, Murray Deeker is as old school as they get, but what might a newer breed of sports pundit say? Someone like, say, TVNZ's Scotty Stevenson on TVNZ's socially conscious breakfast show last Monday. Oh, the kid got what he deserved. Stop running on the field. Stop running on the field. He's just lucky Kane didn't tackle him. I reckon he should have kicked him. Harder. Get off the field. 
Hayden Donnell took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday on nights here on RNZ National. While he was at it, he also talked to Mark Leishman about another scandal with another presenter at the BBC and how a single morsel of red meat policy on crime obscured an entire manifesto of green policy in the media last weekend. And they also talked about things that didn't quite go to plan on Media Watch last weekend. If you missed Midweek Media Watch, you'll find it on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it available for free wherever you get your podcasts. These days, plenty of us get our news from online services like Google, Facebook, Twitter and so on. But the platforms that pump the news to us on the net now make much more money out of that than the media who make the actual news. And various governments around the world have confronted the titans of tech to try and level that playing field by changing the law. And that's created a bit of tension. Last week, for instance, Canada's CBC reported this. Google is pushing back against a law that would force tech companies to pay news organizations, including CBC News, for each story accessed through its site. For the federal government, it's a way to make tech giants pass on some of the ad revenue to media outlets, not how Google sees it. So what would this look like? This page you see now, mostly full of Canadian outlets about this very story, none of them would show up once the company makes its move. And it's not only Google pushing back and threatening to cut out Canadian news. Facebook's owner Meta has also threatened to do that. The way the bill is drafted doesn't allow for negotiations outside the framework of the legislation. So there are no negotiations currently. Uh, We are proceeding towards ending the availability of news permanently in Canada. Now, Facebook tried the same tactic before in Australia, but it didn't work over there. And Facebook's owner Meta and Google eventually did do deals that gave the media more money for their news in Australia because they would have been forced to otherwise by the federal government when it changed the law. And now the tech titans could also get fierce fines there for publishing falsehoods online. Under proposed new laws, search engines, social media platforms, dating websites and online marketplaces could be hit with fines of between nearly $3 and $7 million or up to 5% of their global turnover, whichever's highest, if they fail to properly tackle disinformation. And for the first time, the communications watchdog could demand access to digital providers' documents related to fake news. Well, here, our government also wants to extend media content regulation to the online realm, but they're nowhere near as far down the track. After three years of pondering the problem, the Department of Internal Affairs has only recently released a discussion paper, and public input on that is open until the end of this month. But by contrast, successive Australian governments, one right-leaning and the current one which leans to the left, have been willing to confront big tech in ways that governments the world over have been watching, including ours. In 2021, the Scott Morrison-led government legislated to force the big tech platforms to negotiate with Australia's news media to pay for the news that they carry on their platforms. And the architect of the Australian news media bargaining code, Rod Sims, who was dubbed the man who forced Google and Meta to pay for news, told MediaWatch last year that the income in Australia has been substantial. Uh, I know for a fact that the payments were well in excess of 200 million they weren't around 200 million they were above 200 million so if new zealand is one-fifth of that then 40 to 50 million 
sounds absolutely the right number. Now, our Broadcasting and Media Minister, Willie Jackson, has also been prodding the tech titans to do deals to compensate our news media, backed up by the prospect of a legislative backstop if they don't. Now, Google did reach agreement with some media outlets after that for its news showcase service, but not with media who banded together to seek a collective deal that they believed would be fairer for all. Last December, the Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson told TVNZ's Q&A show that his government would change the law if deals weren't done by the Silicon Valley giants. It's not just about the big guys like spin-off, it's about the Northern Advocate, it's about mm. the Whanganui Chronicle, it's about the Otago Daily Times. Uh, we've probably lost 50% of journalists in the last 10 years. We've got to give hope to the small guy, to the, mm. to the small players out there. And so I'm really proud to bring forward this legislation to support them. It'll be a, a, it'll be a backstop more than anything else because we're hoping that they will negotiate a good agreement. And it turns out the Minister wrote to tech companies just before that and Google, for one, wasn't too pleased. Documents released to RNZ under the Official Information Act subsequently included a letter from Google's New Zealand country manager, Carolyn Rainsford, telling the minister that Google had been dealing in good faith with other New Zealand news media. And she pointed out that the so-called small guys, like the Northern Advocate and Whanganui Chronicle, were actually part of New Zealand's second biggest publisher, NZME, which had already done a deal with Google for content on its news showcase. And Google also complained that the minister wasn't following standard practice with a policy paper allowing for public input. But how much might our media get from the likes of Google anyway? Well, the sums are confidential and commercially sensitive, and after the first Google deals last year, RNZ's business editor Giles Beckford could only get this response from Google's Sydney-based head of partnerships, Shilpa Junjunwala. We can't give you any kind of commercial numbers because they're on all commercial and confidence, Giles, unfortunately. Are you able to suggest that you know this is worth broadly millions for the uh, publishing industries in New Zealand and for journalistic? Yeah, our global commitment for Showcase that we, when we announced it in October 2020 is $1 billion over three years. But beyond that, we're not able to share anything specific to New Zealand. But this year, in February, Google did do a deal with TBNZ, and late last month it finally reached agreements with Stuff, the Otago Daily Times publisher Allied Press, the spin-off, and a bunch of smaller publishers, bringing the total number of publications to 47. But what about others, notably Meta, formerly known as Facebook? Well, Meta did a deal with the New Zealand Herald's publisher NZME in April after NZME backed out of the collective effort to negotiate, but that's the only one we know of so far. So will that legislation Willie Jackson spoke of force the issue in the end? A draft hasn't been released yet, and as Stuff's Glenn McConnell pointed out recently, the October election means there will be fewer days for Parliament to consider bills this year. And if the government changes, Nationals Broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee has told Stuff she didn't see what good would coming from forcing people to negotiate. So it's a matter of wait and see then for our news media, who have already been waiting quite a while. Back in 2021, journalism expert Andrea Carson from Melbourne's La Trobe University published a major report on misinformation in this part of the world that was funded by Facebook itself. And also in 2021, she published a major analysis of that groundbreaking deal that was struck with the Australian news media, in which she said that big tech's hold over the media industry might now be set to change. So, has it? That legislation was put in place in 2021 called the News Media Bargaining Code. And then the other prong, the one we're talking about now, 
to have a voluntary code on how they're handling mis- and disinformation, which was also put in place in 2021. And what it does is it gives um, extra powers to ACMA or enables its reserve powers to ensure that that voluntary code has a little bit more grunt. Um, it does attract penalties for platforms that systemically do not deal with mis- and disinformation, which can be 2% of global turnover if they're not complying with the code, or 2.75 million, whichever is the greatest. If they don't belong to the code and they're not complying with industry standard, those fines are double. We're looking at 6.88 million or 5% of global turnover. At the moment, there's about 10 platforms that have voluntarily signed up to what's known as the Digi Code, the Mis- and Disinformation Code of Practice. There's some that haven't, and we're thinking here more of encrypted peer-to-peer sites like Telegram that aren't signatories to that current code. In that case, if they're not complying with industry standard, they'd face that bigger penalty. And Andrea, is there acceptance among perhaps even just those who have been prepared to sign up to the code at what misinformation is and who should be able to determine, you know, what specific content can be classed in that way? It's a good question, The problem is that misinformation and disinformation can be entwined. You can have um, someone acting in bad faith that can spread something maliciously and then it can be picked up haphazardly by someone who thinks it's true who's sending it on to friends and family. Um, But will it be your regulator, the ACMA, that decides in case by case? Not exactly. They'll be looking at systemic patterns of how Facebook or Meta and Google uh, and so forth are dealing with the broader problem of mis- and disinformation on their platforms. If they're not being transparent about um, having regular reports about how they're tackling this problem, what they're taking down, what they're turning the algorithm down on, then they might be opened for a fine. There's a few things it doesn't do. It's not going to, at this point, look at individual pieces of mis- and disinformation, so we're not having a statutory authority making those judgments. Um, It also excludes political content. And uh, an area that I think is controversial is it's not looking at mainstream media content on the platforms that also might carry mis- and disinformation. There are things that will not be captured under this draft bill. Well, that, that was a concern for people here at the start of this process, that news media might be folded into, you know, the same sort of rules. But interesting that in Australia, so now you have a Labor-led government uh, rolling out this piece of legislation. And two years ago when we spoke, it was a very different flavour of government, um, a na- uh, national and liberal government led by Scott Morrison backing up the news media and their negotiations to get payment for their news. Is there political consensus uh, on this? Yes, you're right to point that out. When the News Media Bargaining Code came into power, it was um, a Conservative government that introduced that. But in Australia, as your listeners know, we've got the Murdoch empire. Rupert Murdoch um, and his executives were um, fairly proactive in making trips to Canberra, not Murdoch himself, but his representatives, and speaking to politicians. And they have been significant beneficiaries of the News Media Bargaining Code. The idea of that legislation is to try and get the platforms and the news companies to come together and make their own deals about what they think is a fair value exchange. 
200 million Australian dollars has changed hands in 12 months. About 150 million of that has gone to our two major news players, which is News Corp, Murdoch's News Corp, and the Nine Entertainment Network. The consensus is really among mainstream media organisations, legacy organisations, are fans of the News Media Bargaining Code because it's opened up a new revenue stream for them. But the smaller startups and um, media outlets have not enjoyed the same level of revenue flow. Many have been shut out, particularly by Facebook. Facebook seemed to make a calculation that once it had done 13 deals, that was enough and just stopped engaging with media organisations. And to give you an example of that, our second public broadcaster, um, SBS, was not able to get a deal with Facebook, but did get one with Google. And the same was true of The Conversation, which is our academic digest, which I think you also have in New Zealand. It got a deal done with Google, but not with the conversa- uh, not with Facebook. And this shows a little bit of cynicism, I think, on behalf of the platforms that once they think they've done enough, and Facebook obviously saw that threshold as being lower than what Google did, it stopped doing deals. And it can't be compelled to do any more deals unless the legislation gets designated. And here I think you've probably got not a great appetite coming from either the coalition government, as was in power two years ago or a year ago, or the Labor government to designate that legislation. Uh, Our government took a very much wait and see what happens in Australia attitude and encouraged the platforms to do deals with our media. So one of our biggest news producers and some of the smaller ones banded together. Google has uh, reached an agreement with those ones who banded together collectively for for payment. However, Meta seems uh, to not want to respond to the same prompts as Google. That's fascinating. One of the things about the Australian legislation is it was world first in that it used competition law rather than copyright law to compel the platforms to pay for third-party news content on their sites. It's had a bit of a contagion effect. The UK is about to launch a similar bargaining code um, that's being debated in its parliament. Canada's had a similar bill in sitting in its upper house. Brazil has looked to the Australian code as well. South Africa is doing something similar. And Indonesia is looking at compelling the major companies to pay or platforms to pay for news on their platforms by presidential decree. So New Zealand's a really interesting one for me to watch. A couple of years ago, we spoke to Uh, or in fact more recently than that, to Rod Sims, the former chair of the Australian regulator, the ACCC, dubbed the the man who made Google and Facebook pay. Now, he he in recent days has piped up saying AI is the new frontier of this and tech companies scraping online content to feed their AI engines should also uh, be paying news media for that in the same way as perhaps, you know, Google and search and Facebook on social distribution have been made to confront that. Is is that the next uh, frontier in all this? Yeah, I think Rod Sims is right. Google and other platforms have suggested they're going to use AI to do their own news stories and fact-checking. But, of course, these stories don't come out of nowhere. In order to have um, accurate information that looks like news, it needs to train an algorithm, a large language model, based on a very large database of news stories in order to be able to... And and lots of those news stories, the best ones, could well be behind paywalls, right? 
Yes, it could be. And this is where the legislation already might be a little bit out of date because it hasn't taken into account the value that comes from training these algorithms on a large news database. And that's worth something quite a lot I to the platforms, and yet there's no value that's been put on that use of news for that purpose. So I think in that regard, Rod Sims is right, that this is the new frontier and policymakers need to look at this to see whether the legislation only, you know, a year and a half old might need to be updated or those that are looking to the Australian legislation to add this other um, element into the development of their laws. Yes, I think that's exactly what the argument will be that is coming from the legacy news media outlets. That was Andrea Carson, formerly a journalist at the ABC and Melbourne's main daily paper, The Age, who's now a professor of politics and media at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last weekend we spoke to Anna Samways, author of a new weekly online column for the listener called Digital Bonfire, which will be a bit like, but also a bit different to, a column called Sideswipe, which she wrote for The Herald for more than 21 years, every weekday until May this year. Now we reckon that made it possibly the longest running individual regular column in a major New Zealand media outlet in modern times, but a few listeners got in touch with claims of columns that had a longer lifespan, though some didn't quite compare. But one certainly did, and it turns out Sideswipe wasn't even the longest running regular column at the Herald. Mary Holm has been writing a column of personal finance advice and information every week in the Weekend Herald since 1998, and she's also been a regular contributor here on RNZ National since 2015. I know that the feedback is a big thing. You base uh, your column on the Q and A, uh, well, giving the A's to the Q's of the people who write in with their queries. But the first one, obviously, you couldn't have done that. Can you remember what you wrote about first time round? Yes, yeah, no, I did. I asked friends and family, and, and uh, Rod Orham, who was the editor of the business editor of the Herald at the time, asked um, Herald business writers. And between that lot, we managed to get three questions, which were basically about the same sort of things that I still get questions about. You know, um, somebody wanting a 25% return on an investment, <laughs> so totally unrealistic. Um, there was somebody complaining about the banks, I think, which is an absolute perennial subject. And then there's another one about um, investing in unit trusts, which are like Kiwi Saver funds, basically. It was pre- this was pre Kiwi Saver days, but so they ended up being very typical questions, but they were real. And all the way through, the questions in the column have always been real. People say to me, "Oh, you must make some of them up," but I get way, way too many letters. You know, I'm always agonising about the ones I can't get into the paper. It's certainly not a case of making any up. In fact, you wrote, when you marked the 25th anniversary, uh, it's this flow of inspiring, worrying or intriguing thoughts from readers that's given me the energy to churn out columns year after year. More than two million words. You say a good proportion of those have been your words, the readers, not mine. uh, Because there's all sorts of avenues that people can go to to get their financial advice. Are they still coming through in the sort of volumes as they might have been in the earlier years? Yes, uh, more and more all the time. The the numbers of letters just keeps growing. Uh, yeah. 
long-running columnists uh, and some in specialist areas like, say, the arts, a lot of them have ended up publishing their own stuff in a way because their columns haven't lasted for for whatever reason, uh, and they turn to forums like Substack, you know, an online uh, newsletter. Yeah. And when we look look back, we saw that you were doing your own one before the kind of two way internet was a thing with um, Home Truths, the newsletter. And when we look at it, it was actually a bit like <gasps> the Substacks today with charts and graphics, a little cartoon, even a crossword. Yeah, that that is true. Actually, I've forgotten about home truths. Yes, yeah, and I used to love making up the crosswords. So that was all done in paper form back then, and it went to um, some a couple of KiwiSaver providers sent them out to their members. And but it kind of after a while, people were busy doing their own thing, and it that came and went. But seeing as you do respond directly to the people who get in touch, and you've been doing it so long. You've seen it all before, and sometimes you might be a little wary of these questions. You think, oh, people still asking this after me telling them for 25 <laughs> years. That it's, an old editor of mine actually called this problem, um, he called it the uh, listen sunny, listen honey problem, as in, you know, people have been around for so long, would listen to a question, now listen, sunny, I've, I've been around the block, I'm telling you. Is that a problem as you get uh, more uh, experience, shall we say, in giving out this advice? don't feel like I want to say that, but I, I always think there's a balance between um, bringing, obviously, fairly new people to the column, bringing them in and explaining the basics about how to pick a good KiwiSaver fund, something like that, and I worry that that's going to bore the long-term readers. I have to... But, but one thing I've got going for me, Colin, is that there are usually four or five different Q&As in the column, and so... People might read one question and say, oh, I already know what she's going to say to that one, and move on to the next question rather than just giving up on the column, I hope. They think you're predictable. Look, I'm sure they do on certain topics. I do have to try and think of slightly different ways to make the same points, but there's always some fresh ones coming in. I mean, I've written several other columns over the 25 years, and kind of after a while you do run out of steam when they're just sort of straight articles. But the energy I get from points that people make, one of the things I love is that I'll write an answer to a question and then other readers will come in and say, hey, what about this angle or what about this idea? I pretty much always run those the following week so we can get a conversation going with a whole kind of community that might last several weeks. Maybe we're looking at reverse mortgages and some people have had a great experience with them and some people have had a terrible experience with them. So it gives other readers a lot of information about you know, what can work and what can't work. Seeing as you mention it there about mortgages, uh, that is coincidentally one thing we're also looking at this week is reports of a so-called mortgage bomb uh, going off, all those people that fixed mortgages for a couple of years yeah. ago when um, rates were low but house prices were high. So do you read some of the media coverage and perhaps, you know, the political uh, angle of this? Definitely. I mean, it's very hard for some people whose mortgages have rolled over and onto much higher interest rates. But one point that I think we have to make is I think the media gets obsessed with mortgages, quite possibly because a lot of the more senior people in the media have got mortgages. Um, you know, like a lot of older people have paid off their mortgage or don't own a home. And I, I think I get a disproportionate number of 
letters from older people who probably have been reading the column for years and years and mortgages aren't an issue for them. In recent years, journalists, columnists, uh, identities in the media have attracted more hostility and maybe, you know, a bit of sort of suspicion and paranoia about the media in general. Uh, Have you copped any of this fiery, you know, feedback which is becoming so unpleasant for so many people who have their name out in the media? Look, I don't get a lot of really hostile stuff. I get a few... You know, every now and then someone violently disagrees with what I've said. And I make a point of almost always running those letters in the next column, partly because I don't want them to think she didn't have the guts to run it, you know. And and sometimes I have to say, look, you've got a point. Look, I don't get very many. I had one angry letter, an interesting one, about a year ago from someone objecting to two Maori words. It wasn't actually even me speaking. It was me quoting someone who used the words Aotearoa and kai, as in putting kai on the table. And he said, you know, stop speaking this this language that most of us don't understand, etc. In my response, I actually put the first sentence in, in te reo, which I don't speak, but I got a friend to write it for me. And it made a fairly brief response saying, I thought that, you know, New Zealanders do understand words like kai and Aotearoa. And and I had the biggest flood of letters that I've ever had. The vast majority of them agreeing with me, but quite a few agreeing with what he had said too. And I actually wanted to fill the next column with some of those letters and, and the business editor said, hey, Mary, you can have half the column with that, but you meant to be writing about mortgages and KiwiSaver, et cetera. Yes, here at RNZ, we are also familiar with uh, communications from some listeners, particularly uh, triggered by uh, the appearance of occasional words in te reo. So it's not unfamiliar yes, to us as I'm well. sure. Um, do you have a target in mind? Do you want to be getting to a certain number of years or are you just going to carry on doing this as long as you want to and as long as the hero will have you? Uh, how about 50 years? Um, <laughs> we'll put it in our diary for the 50th anniversary, which um, which will Very be, good. let's see, what's that, 2048? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll be there. Okay. We'll talk then. Hopefully you won't have changed your number. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. And we'll listen out for you on Jesse's programme as well, of course, every second Thursday. Thank you. It's Mary Holm, who's been writing a column of personal finance advice and information every week in the Weekend Herald since 1998. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media next Wednesday after the 10pm news on nights with Midweek Media Watch. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.